Hey, you guys, this is Danny. This is episode 29. Before we get started, I just want to mention we recorded this show live, did we not, Mikey? We absolutely did at the Seattle Medical Cannabis Cup. It was very exciting. Yeah. First live recording. Yeah, we had a nice crowd. We had great guests. Uh, you're about to listen to that. We have uh, Drew West, the author of Grow Secrets of the West Coast Masters. We had uh, Swerve, Swerve yeah. from the Cali Connection, great, great pot breeder, and a legend. Uh, absolute legend DJ Short, uh, creator of the Blueberry and many other. How strains. lucky were we to get DJ? He was actually filling in for Subcool, for Subcool and yeah. he did a great job. He so did you'll a great hear job, terrific. Yeah, we have that, and uh, as always, brought to you by BC Northern Lights. Check them out at bcnorthernlights.com and uh, Stealth Grow, which have that great uh, green nightlight deal. We're going to talk about that a little later on in the show. Um, download us on Stitcher. Check us out on your iPhone, your Android, your tablet, your iPad, uh, <laughs> if you're trimming buds or if you're in, in the grow room doing a foliar feed, uh, howdy. <laughs> yes. Well, and, keep, uh, up, keep up the good work. And, uh, I, you know, I should just mention this was the, the first time that we did this and it was a great experience. It's really, it brings something uh, really cool, you know, to the whole process when you're doing it in front of a live audience and you're feeding off of their energy. Yeah. It was great. We liked it so much. We're going to do it again in Amsterdam, right? In Amsterdam at the 25th Cannabis Cup coming up in November. So get your tickets for that now. Yeah. Uh, Medcan, no, not Medcan Cup, uh, Cannabis Cup. Cannabis Cup. Cup. Com. All the info there. So uh, check it out. Episode 29 coming your way. You want to do your thing? I'll do it for you. So without further ado, <laughs> please enjoy this very first ever live recording of Free Weed. Seattle Medical Cannabis Cup. Yes. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you, guys. I'm, I'm Mike Danny. Hughes. This is Danny Danko. Hi. Hi. How are you guys? Um, big round of applause for Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. You've been gracious hosts and amazing bud and beautiful vibe. Amazing, amazing t place. So we're really excited to be here. And we are, yeah. yeah. It's nice to get out of the studio, too. So live <laughs> studio audience is wonderful. Yeah, we have a pretty cool panel here. We're going to talk about cultivating marijuana. Um, yeah, the, the format of the show is going to be a little bit different, uh, but we're just going to bring up some cultivation experts, and uh, they're going to talk for a while, and then we'll get some of your questions, and uh, the panel, yeah. Dan will answer them. So uh, yeah. what do you say we bring them up? Introduce the panel. Is that what we do now? You should introduce All the right. panel. Um, or we could keep riffing if you want. <laughs> Perhaps not. Funny story. <laughs> All right, I'd like to introduce, uh, he's the author of Secrets of the West Coast Masters, uh, Uncover the Ultimate Techniques for Growing Medical Marijuana, 
a medical cannabis cultivator, caretaker, and patient in Bend, Oregon, where he's lived for the past six years. Before that, he spent nearly a decade designing and managing grow ops across the United States. Uh, good friend and author, Drew West. Give him a hand. Yes, give him a hand. He is from the area, so we're excited to have him on the panel. Welcome. All right. Uh, second on the panel, I'd like to introduce uh, the breeder for the Cali Connection, winners of multiple Cannabis Cups and High Times Top Ten Strain Awards, and also a member of the High Times Seed Bank Hall of Fame. Um, the Cali Connection has a specialty in producing seeds uh, of previously clone-only Kush varieties made famous in Southern California. And Swerve continues his quest to produce the finest buds and seeds for the marijuana market. So a uh, big hand for Give Swerve. Give it up for Swerve. Yes. And he's moved beyond Kush's into all kinds of great strains. So. And uh, Subcool ac- actually, unfortunately, wasn't able to make it. He's got a table here but, uh, and great products. But in his place, we are honored to have the great DJ Short, a, uh, a breeder that most people who know uh, about marijuana will know, uh, creator of the Blueberry, the Flow, um, Old Time Moonshine, some really amazing strains. And for many, many years, he's... Uh, Bred and grown all over the world, so we're excited to have him on the panel as well. Welcome, DJ Short. And an interesting fact: they're all uh, panelists are uh, former guests of Free Weed, so now we get them live. Absolutely. All right, we're going to get right into uh, cultivation because we don't have a ton of time, and I definitely want to get to the questions and everything that you guys have as well. Uh, Basically, we're going to start at the beginning, uh, popping seeds. You know, you really, even if you're working with mother plants at some point or another, you're going to have to start by popping seeds. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that um, from these guys' perspective. So, uh, Drew, what do you have to say about uh, how to pop seeds and and, um, how vital or important is that stage of uh, the plant's life? Thank you, everybody, for coming out. It's an honor to be here, first of all. Um, you know, that's probably one of the most important stages in the plant's life, you know. That's when they're a baby. That's when you've got to be, you know, keep a very sterile environment, you know, and have very, you know, just, it's got to be sure to do all the right steps, you know what I mean? There's tons of different ways to crack seeds. Uh, there's some ways that are better than others. Um, I think, really, uh, these dudes are probably more experts on that, you know. All right. Well, they make a lot of seeds. Um, maybe... Uh, Swerve, what, what's, your, what's your take on popping seeds and get, just getting started in general? Uh, well, first, hey, everybody, how you doing? Yep. I'm Swerve. Thank you, Danny, for having me. Absolutely. And awesome being on this panel with these guys, legends right here. Um, I probably pop seeds way different than most people. I actually usually throw my seeds into a glass of water um, for most of the time, anywhere from 16 to 24 hours, depending on when I see the usually about an eighth-inch long taproot. And then I go from there into my Rockwell cube or my medium of choice. It could be soil or whatever. Um, that's pretty much my, in one way of saying it, an almost fail-proof method of doing it as opposed to just going directly into soil because it does take a little bit longer in that aspect of things because you have to keep the soil most uh, moist. Excuse me. Um, so, yeah, so glass of water is my take on it. Cool. And uh, DJ? Sure, sure. Um, 
kind of the old traditional method. It's in the water. I like to use a little shot glass of water, distilled water. Sterility is really important. Um, clean plate, either glass or, or some kind of ceramic, um, into paper towel after 12 or so hours. Um, I like to let my tap roots go a little bit longer, um, and then I always plant in soil. So the cup I'll use, I'll put about half full with the soil, put the hole in it, get the tap root down in there, and have extra space as the plant starts to stretch to put a little more soil um, in there with that. But it's the basic paper, paper towel method. Cool. All right. Um, the, the, the seed, seedling stage is very important, and this is a time when I find that a lot of people have their lights too far away as well, and they get a lot of stretching during that period. So we're going to talk a little bit about the vegetative stage as well, which is the first stage before you go into flowering and producing buds. Um, you have the vegetative stage where you need at least 18 hours of, of light per 24-hour a day. So um, let's talk a little bit about the vegging times and what people should focus on during that time. Yeah, for me, um, the, way, the way I grow and the way we're trying to teach how to grow in the book the vegging point is probably the most important time of the plant's life because that's when we're actually training the plant. You know, we're forming it into a predetermined shape that is going to allow us to get a bigger yield at the end, you know. So a lot about what we talk about in the book is just the training of the plant. What's really important during the veg cycle is to keep, like, a level canopy among all your branches. Uh, the reason that is is because the plant can sense gravity. Uh, the tallest branch has the best chance of getting pollinated, you know what I mean, living out its life cycle. So what it does, it sends more hormones and more strength to the highest branch. So if you maintain a canopy that's level, it doesn't pick a dominant branch, and each one will grow nearly identical to each other. What we're trying to do and show in the book is basically how to train a plant that has 64 tops that'll give you at least like a quarter ounce off of each one, which adds up to a pound per plant. Depending on the strain, you know, you get more, you can get less, some you can get two pounds. Um, but really during the veg cycle is the most important time for me to maintain that and to do all your trimming, your pruning, and just to get the plant in a fashion that's going to be best for yield, you know what I mean? Okay. And uh, what about feeding during the vegetative time, Swerve? Oh, uh, God, once again, I'm probably the worst person for this, but uh, I... Uh... I say... You, you I, flower clones in, as soon as they root, pretty not much, Not at right? all. I veg them yeah. like crazy. I have no oh, okay. idea. No. Um, I, uh, uh, let's see. I go with a high nitrogen, high calcium, magnesium uh, veg. I do a complete almost opposite of what most people know as the Lucas formula. I run a little different. I kind of run everything a little bit, as I like to call it, balls to the wall. Um, most people look at my style and obviously think it's a little crazy because it's, it's extremely cutthroat and I've cut out a lot of, as what I deemed, waste of time. But most people will tell me that I'm the waste of time. Um, but uh, high nitrogen, high calcium, magnesium during veg is uh, what really, in my opinion, produces a nice dark green foliage. You get um, the good expressions in the sense of this, the plant grows the way it should. It grows... You know, if you got the branching, it'll give you the branching. You'll be able to fill out your canopy a little bit easier because it's got that. And in my experience, it, it lasts. The nitrogen keeps through the end of flower, as opposed to not uh, chasing that nitrogen efficiency towards the last like three or so four weeks of flower. That most people usually cut your nitrogen out or start lowering your nitrogen or decreasing it. 
uh, towards the end of flower. I, once again, I run everything a little bit different. I don't do any of that. I keep everything, I mean, I fade off my nitrogen, but not too hard. Uh, but going into flower, I like a nice dark green plant, so I keep high nitrogen and yeah, that's what keeps me nice and green towards the end. Uh, DJ? Let's see, light timing. We're talking we about the vegetative stage and, and um, the, Im the importance of feeding during vegetative stage. Feeding again, yeah, I'm, I'm not the best person. <laughs> um, the, the less is more for me. Keep it simple. I like to fortify my soil, worm castings, uh, fossilized bat guano, uh, those kinds of things. I do like kelp, um, maxi crop, green labels, pretty good. Um, but as, yeah, as far as feeding, just, just as light as possible, fortify the soil is, is what I like to do. You got to remember the plant's main source of food is light. Okay. And it's using these other nutrients to metabolize that uh, chlorophyll that it's making from the light. So light's very important, I think, uh, more so than food. Maybe another thing to concentrate during the vegetative stage is your life and your soil. That's just as important as any of the nutrients you're going to throw on there or any of the type of lights that you're going to put over your plants. It's a good time to fortify your soil with, uh, you know, uh, things like uh, beneficial bacterias and beneficial funguses and stuff that are going to actually create life in the soil, which will help break down the nutrients that you put in there and make them available to the plants to eat. So, I mean, I like to use a lot of mycorrhiza and a lot of things like that and then feed them with some kind of um, you know, simple carbohydrate like molasses or something, mix a little bit of that into your feeding with those. And you'll find that just doing that is as beneficial as most of the additive things you're going to pour on your plant, you know, like as far as feeding goes. All right. Um, Mike, you have a question? Oh, yeah. We, we talked a little bit about seeds earlier. And a lot of uh, the freeweed listeners, they write in asking about clones. So uh, we were wondering, um, how do you guys get your clones started? What's your process there? Anybody want to take that one? Big moms. <laughs> no. Um. Well, let me just explain real quick. Uh, uh, a clone is a piece of a plant, a, m a mother plant that's vegetative. You, t you take a piece of it, cut it off, and root the piece. You ba basically get it to induce roots from the bottom. And if you do that with a mother plant that has a bunch of different clones on it, you're going to have that level canopy that he was talking about because all the plants behave the same. They have the same DNA. They're literally clones of, of a plant. So. Pruning, 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 that's essentially what it comes down to, like in my opinion on clones. You could get a great mom, but pruning her and keeping her around as a perfectly pruned mom is what's going to provide like great clones, you know, for a consistent thing, I think, and, and from what I've experienced. I know we all pretty much have way different growing styles up here. I grow completely hydroponic right now. I'm all water and rock wool, or I just do all water, DWC, RDWC, so... We got organic soil here. I'm full hydro, and we got organic soil as well here. So that's why you're going to get three completely different answers. Well, two pretty similar, <laughs> and then one way off the charts. But, uh, but what about the process of actually cloning? cloning? I do the old school method. I have a way that I call it. I call it uh, clip, stip, uh, clip, dip, stick. Literally, that's what I do. I clip my... Uh, my Mm, try to get them about maybe five inches tall if you can, cutting, snip off the mom plant, um, preferably just above the node. Um, and, uh, yeah, dip it into a rooting solution, whether you use powder solution or uh, uh, rooting gel. 
and then stick it in your, I stick it in Rockwell Cube, go under a dome, and wait two weeks. Yeah, a piece of advice uh, re- regarding mother plants that I found, I like to rejuvenate them outdoors in the summer. Um, keep the mother plant going, uh, take the cuttings off her, trim her down, prune her nice, but she'll get root-bound, of course, by the spring, and I like to take that root-bound plant out to the outdoor garden. Um, the old roots that are sort of going around and around, root-bound, the dark roots, cut those right off. Just cut the whole bottom of the root mass off. Outdoors they go, April, May, and then come late July, August, they're fully rejuvenated. They're back to seven, uh, nine, sometimes 11 leaflets. Um, mold is, is dealt with. Well, I'm in a desert. East side of the state's definitely more sunny than the west side. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's a handy piece of advice there is to rejuvenate your mothers outdoors in the summer. It, it just really brings them back, and they keep going for a long time. All right. Um, I think uh, Drew wanted to comment on that. Okay, perfect. One other thing I do, just like the act of taking the clone, is I'll take well, – I'm looking for the structure, too, and I'm looking for a certain node development that it's going to have on there because I'm trying to grow a plant and it you know, looks a specific way. So I'll find something that has, like, four or five nodes already formed on it. I'll cut it as close as I can to the main stock that it comes off of, and then from there I'll take and put it in some water. When I make my final cut on it, before I dip it in the root gel, I'll put it in a, like a Pyrex dish full of distilled water and submerge it in that. And the reason I do that is because the plant feeds itself through like a vacuum system, you know, always pulling from inside and out, to the, out the leaves. So when you make that incision or that cut, it'll pull air up into that area and it'll kill the cells in the cell wall and it make that might not get as many uh, vigorous roots that way or something, you know. I mean, if you do it without doing that, you'll still get roots, but we like to do that. I find that's really sterile, you know, to do it, to cut it actually in the water, then go into the root gel, and then go into your clone machine, your rock wool, your, your cubes, whatever you got. And uh, I would add to that also, use very a very sharp implement. Don't use scissors. Use a razor blade and put the clone under light so that it's warm and humid. A dome works really good for that. Um, and the, the warmth and the humidity will help you a lot because if it's dry or cool, even room temperature is a little too cold for clones to root. So you definitely a heat mat underneath the cloning tray is, is a great idea and very cheap way to make sure you get more clones and less die-off. Um, you want to go ahead? Uh, indoors, when you're basically growing, you're growing vegetatively, you choose when to begin flowering by changing the light cycle. So we talked about it being 18 or more hours on. That's going to keep the plant vegetating, growing branches and leaves and not flowers. Once you cut that cycle to 12, hour, 12 hours on and 12 hours off, that's the beginning of the flowering cycle. And typically cannabis has about 60 days or so after you induce flowering until it's finished. Now sativas are going to go longer, some indicas go shorter, but that's about the average and uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the flowering process, uh, especially indoors, because indoors you have control that you don't really have outdoors. So uh, that early stage of flowering, what, what can you tell people about that? Um, I think one of the bigger things for me is a lot of people assume that the moment you flip the lights and put it into flower, you'll start feeding it flower food. 
you know. And that's not, for me, that's not the case, you know. I, I think the plant is still in a vegetative stage throughout that time for at least like the first 10 days to two weeks. You know, so if you go throw it in there and you've been giving it a high nitrogen regimen and then you just throw it in there and give it a bunch of phosphorus, potassium, it's going to kind of stress the plant out. And at the end of its life, it's not going to do what it could have done. So, and also your plants are going to sometimes double to, you know, two and a half times their size within the first two weeks of bud once you flip those lights. They need that nitrogen and that bud food, I mean that veg food rather, to, to sustain that. So like the first week, I'll give it the same food I was giving it in veg. And then I'll give it half the food I was giving it in veg. And then I'll give it half veg, half bud. You know, this is if, now of course this is if you're using like a synthetic, you know, like Botanicare or something, which I assume like a lot of people do, you know what I mean? And you give it half bud, half veg, and then work it into the full bud feeding, you know what I mean? And, um, and I find that that just helps a lot with that first couple weeks and the big burst of growth, and then it helps a lot for the bud onset. You'll see your buds set up a lot faster that way. And um, yeah, so I mean, for the first transition, I think that's a real important thing for sure. Swerve, have you got anything on that? No, I agree with that pretty much. Like, I think that you definitely need to make sure that you keep your uh, your veggie nutrients into the first week, mm, you know, and half it and start cutting it down. Yeah, definitely, and start transitioning to bloom by the second week to third week, so you're full bloom by you know almost four weeks in. But in real retrospect, that's really only the second week of true flower. That's the thing that people, in my honest opinion, kind of lack on. People will go flower from the moment they switch 12-12. I personally don't really count those the, the first. I usually don't count the first two weeks, but the first week, in my opinion, the plant's transitioning, so it's not even flowering yet. It's still in a state of like, okay, I'm vegging, but I'm stretching. You know, but high nitrogen, in my opinion, through the high nitrogen through the beginning, and then start slowly introducing your, uh, your bloom as you work your way in is, yeah, you can't really ask for much better. Cool. Um, the, the tip I like to give regarding um, bud cycle has to do with the uh, uh, flowering time. We're all used to 12 on, 12 off. Well, hear me now, thank me later. 11 on, 13 off. Okay? You're, you're, you will be amazed. By you heard it here first. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Um, basically, that's a, a, a basic sativa uh, flowering time. Now, in the tropics, for, for that matter, if you want to really be searching for sativa indoors, you're going to want to manipulate your uh, timing cycle. The veg cycle will be 13 on, 11 off, and your bud cycle will be um, 11 on, 13 off and you'll start to see more uh, sativa phenotypes presenting themselves. The main thing, it's uh, plants take in light and nutrient during the day, and they put it into fiber at night, so they're actually growing more at night. Also, giving it a little bit longer uh, dark period, well, consider the 12-12. It's equal time. And I think the plants are semi-confused just a little bit because they don't know if it's spring or fall. And that's why we tend to see a lot more um, what I call the indica-leaning phenotypes. So that's the one point I just want to make is for your uh, bud cycle, 11 on, 13 off. All right. Interesting. How do you guys feel about that? That's exactly what I use. I just forgot to say yeah, that. Yeah, it's all your face. You, you, said, you seem exactly to wish you said I that. I use 11 on, 13 off, because it's just it just makes more sense if you were to ask me. Wow. All right. A lot of agreement up here. We, <laughs> yeah. need, some, we need some controversy. <laughs> now, 
as flowering continues, you're transitioning from those high nitrogen nutrients to uh, phosphorus and potassium, which is the P and the K in the NPK ratio. So uh, typically the vegging nutrients will have a high number at the beginning, 4, 1, 1, or something like that. That means 4 times nitrogen, 1, 1, NPK. So um, it's a ratio of how strong it, it, how strong those nutrients are within that uh, plant food. And as you start flowering, that's going to be a higher, higher numbers at the end, so the P and the K. Uh, now you're in the flowering period between like the third week and the sixth week. This is when you really actually bulk up and pack on buds, and the flower's formation is really... The plant has stopped stretching so much, and now it's really concentrating on bigger, building bigger flowers. And um, let's talk about that stage a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, that usually starts around three weeks into bud or whatever. You'll start to see little pistils start getting longer on the, on the plants, all the nodes. You'll see your buds start to form. And you just, you know, every day they'll just be getting a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger. You're looking for the, um, you know, you're looking for the trichomes to finish properly. You're looking for a lot of resin output on the buds. Um, but as far as, I mean, for, you saying like for feeding or for like? Just, yeah, feeding or um, anything that people should be concerned about during that time. Well, yeah, I mean, so you got, uh, you know, you got like four weeks, five weeks or so where you're actually feeding the bud plants. That's all important. There's a you know, million ways to do that, a million different products. But I think really the most important thing maybe during the bud stage is actually flushing, you know, getting all the stuff out of the bud that you've put into it. You know what I mean? Right, and that's at the end when you're about two weeks before you harvest. Right, and you know, the whole process of that is to flush the, the nutrients and the minerals and stuff that are built up in the soil, to flush those out of the soil in a way that you starve the plant. It has to contain. It has to consume what's in itself, which is stored up the nutrients and stuff within itself. And then once you do that, you get much cleaner bud because none of the, none of the chemicals or none of the minerals or anything that were you were feeding with are going to be present in the buds anymore. So. so you do that by using just plain water. Yeah, pH balance. Exactly. I mean, there's a there's some products you can use for it and stuff. But yeah, like you know, if I'll take a, a five gallon bucket maybe that I'm growing in, I'll run 15 gallons of water through it, maybe five times before I, before I harvest. Basically, every time it needs water, I'll throw, you know, for those last, I think about two weeks, you know, 10 days to two weeks is a safe, you know, period to think that you can thoroughly flush your plant. And, uh, yeah, just straight pH water, and it's just, you know, get a much better finished product, which is, you know, what you're doing everything for in the first place, you know, so. Now, that's interesting, because I think it was at the L.A. Cup, uh, Swerve said something about flushing that was a little controversial. Yeah, let's hear it, it didn't, uh, your take on flushing. It didn't matter if it was synthetic or organic. It was all about the flush. Is that it's right? It's all about the flush, in my honest opinion. In the end, that's all it comes down to, in my honest opinion. Um, and, you know, I got multiple sclerosis. Most people don't even know that. So metals are a huge thing for me in, inside the bud, and, you know, nitrogen, you know, uh, I mean, boron, zinc, I mean, these are all metals, you know, and uh, so forth. But to go back to what you were saying, though, uh, even before that, quick thing. When I flip the switch, those first two weeks, you get the mad stretch. LST is crucial right there. If you want to spread your plant out, LST or weave it, you know, scrog it kind of, because that's where you're going to be able to do it uh, at the best opportunity uh, with the plant responding well. Otherwise, I kind of, uh, I run things a little hot through my, uh, through my flower cycle, um, I don't mind kind of reaching higher PPMs with my flower cycle because 
of the end result because I'm going to flush all of it out because I'm hydro once again, so it's a little different for me. I don't have to do the, you know, five times, 25 gallons each pot, you know, 100 gallons of water for, you know, I don't have to do that. I could just run clean water with FluorClean or ClearX or something like that for a week and then pure water after that. And then it's pretty much a clean, clean product, you know, if that's the case. But in the end, obviously cleaning the product or the, the, the medicine is the most important thing in my honest opinion. So flush. <laughs> All right, uh, DJ. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, clean is better. And uh, apologies in advance to the uh, fertilizer companies. I'm sure there's a lot of really great products out there. I just don't use them. Um, and this is outdoors. Again, this is in, in regard to outdoors. But funny little story here. For the last five years, my outdoor plants, I've used nothing. Absolutely nothing. Soil, air, sunlight, water. That's it. All right. I'm still getting I, I, security issues. I have to stay at about four feet, but they'll go out nine, ten feet wide, um, and I'm still pulling a pound and a half per plant. I'm certain, I'm, I'm absolutely certain if, if security weren't an issue and I could let them go, I could get three pounds per plant, um, and that's using nothing, okay? You don't have to worry about the flush, and the plant is, is representing its environment purely, in that regard. So there's, there's some controversy. For you. All right, cool. Uh, and again, uh, apologies to the uh, fertilizer another, companies. Another question for you as well. Sure. How do you know when to harvest? There's a lot of information yeah, out there, yeah, but yeah, people yeah. don't really know. Yeah, point of preference, you know. Uh, well, we're finding out that a little earlier harvest is being uh, higher in a CBD ratio. Um, uh, so it's a little uh, headier. Uh, later, of course, is a bit more sedate. Um, uh, around 45 degrees north, outdoors, my favorite harvest date is around mid-October, October 15th, 23rd, if I can stretch them out that long. Um, the swelling of the calyx, I think, is, is a real important visual indicator. But again, it's, it's a point of preference. You know, what, what do you prefer um, from your from your smoke and certain strains give a narrower window of harvest whereas others give a very broad window of harvest certain sativas go in and out of a window of harvest um, so those are things to keep in mind uh, if that helps all right um Swerve, what about you? Uh, do you get in there with the microscope or a loop? Or no. do, you, do you just know your plants well enough? I'm half blind. I can't even see that. It doesn't matter. Um, no, I don't. I actually am that type of guy when I think it's done, I wait two weeks. And then when I think it's done from there, I might even potentially wait another week. <laughs> you know, so let it go. Those listening at home, yeah. uh, DJ Short is nodding his approval right <laughs> no. now. Because yeah. so. I, 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 you, can't, you can't rush it. That's the whole thing. We're, we, you can't rush it. You have to be patient. And I could tell you this much. If you're an impatient person, grow a lot of weed because you're going to be a patient individual by the time the end of it. I mean, look at this man, for Christ's sake. <laughs> he is so cool and so chill. He's a legend here, and he's just awesome. So you can't beat that. You know? But it's, it's, it's a thing. You, I don't know. Cool. I lost it. Well, let's talk about the glandular trichome and uh, the, how, what the different stages that it goes through. Yeah, okay, well... That's the, what looks like the crystal on the bud, but it, it's actually a, a gland with a gland head. And right, it starts off looking like maybe just a hair or something that comes off, and that the, the tip of it sort of inflates over the bud's life, and it becomes like a light bulb-looking thing by the time it's done. A lot of things that people look for um, when harvesting 
are the clarity of the, the trichome bulbs. Um, as when they're immature, premature, not ready to cut down, they're going to be completely clear. As they get closer to uh, their maturity, they start to fog up and get a little bit more um, obscure. They go a little cloudier, right, and then they start to go amber, yeah. gold, golden, reddish kind of colored. Exactly. And, I mean, I, I kind of am the guy that likes to, to see them and know them before I, before I harvest. I want to have a look at it. You know, and there's microscopes and loops and stuff. But uh, one real easy thing is if you just have, like, a digital camera or something, you just zoom in and take a picture of it, and then you'll be able to pull it up on your computer and make it huge and get the trichomes, like, that big and really look and see what you got there, you know. And you are looking for an amberish hue, in my opinion. You know, I don't, I'm not one that will pull early and enjoy it. I'm like these guys. I'll let it go a little bit longer. I like, the, I like that side of it, you know. But that's usually indicated by the cloudiness or the redness or the amber-like color within the trichome. Right, and, and within that are the essential oils, all of the uh, cannabinoids, the THC, CBD, right. CBN. All that's contained within that little gland, right. exactly. And that's uh, when you're making hash, you're basically trying to collect those gland heads and fuse them together right. into hash. Yeah, you, 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 know, you sift them or you can somehow uh, you know, rough up the bud on like a, some kind of sifter or something and you get the crystals and you just call that keef. You know, and then that's what's pressed into hash or that's what's used with the extracts or something to make butter or honey oil or something like that. You go from there. Or you can mix those into your edibles and things like that, too. You know. All right. Um, now, what about the actual process of harvesting? Um, once you've decided, okay, now now's the time. I've waited the extra couple of weeks and I've been waited patient. Waited Very patient. <laughs> and now it's time to harvest. Um, what, what do you, what's your guys' take on harvesting? Uh, you know, hanging it up, do you trim it first, do you trim it after, all that stuff? Um, you know, it's, again, that's a preference thing, whether or not you trim it down to the bone right off the bat and let it dry like that, or if you just take the fan leaves off and let it dry and then go over it again. Uh, people have different purposes, like if you're trying to save all your leaves and all your crystals and keef to make edibles or hash or something, you know, it might be a better idea to just clip off all the fan leaves and hang it like that, and then you can collect all the the little sweet leaves and stuff once it's dried and keep it like that. Otherwise, I mean, if you want it to dry faster, uh, you can just cut everything off of it. You know, you cut all the all the leaves off and just hang it up to dry in a cool, dark place, you know, for a while until it, it gets ready to, you know, until the stem snaps is usually a good indicator, you know. And then at that point comes maybe the second most important thing other than flushing, which I believe is curing, you know. And um, you want to talk about that? Yeah, a lot of our um, listeners write in because uh, it's true. If you, if you blow the curing proce- uh, process, the crop is ruined. It's, so, yeah, please gone, elaborate yeah. on that. So curing is different than drying in the way that when drying, you're just trying to get the moisture out of the bud. Curing is actually extracting the, the leftover chlorophyll, the green color, out of the bud. So when you, like, cut your yard, you know, you cut, mow the lawn or whatever, you put the, you know, the grass in a bag or something and leave it sitting there it gets like a nasty ammonia smell after a couple days or whatever you know that's the same thing that's going on when the bud's drying the um the chlorophyll when it breaks down it actually turns into ammonia the oxygen eats it and then it it turns into ammonia as a byproduct so what you're trying to do with the bud is to extract all that chlorophyll out um the way you do that is you get it completely dry and you put it in a jar you can seal it into a jar you can take an ounce put it in a mason jar Close it, put it in a cool, dark place overnight, open it, and 
and let it air out, and you'll open it, you'll smell right away. You'll get that same bag of grass smell, you know, you get the same chlorophyll smell. You do that. And so the process of curing is just repeating that over and over until you don't get that smell anymore, you know. And, um, you know, it'll get to the point where you don't have to open it every day. You can open it every day for the first week and then put it away, open it three days later, put it away, open it a week later. But I like to put a good month cure on my bud before I smoke it, you know. And you, what... And a way to tell if you're smoking cured bud or non-cured bud, one of the easiest ways is when you smoke it in the pipe or whatever, if it turns into like a lump of coal and doesn't like suck through your bong or whatever, that's uncured bud. You know, there's all that stuff's left in there. If it turns nice and gray, ash, and just kind of gone, that's what you're looking for. You know, that's, that's been dried properly and cured properly. And that's, you know, and that whether or not it's cured is going to affect the flavor of it. It's going to affect how smooth it is or how harsh it is on you. You know, and just really what you want is this good, clean, flush bud and good, cured bud. And that's your, ultimately what you're going for, you know. Swear. Well, I use my fan, well, not my fan leaves, excuse me, my sugar leaves for my extracts because I actually pretty much rarely smoke green because um, it really doesn't do much for my symptoms. So I mainly smoke concentrates uh, because it seems to help better with my uh, MS and my spasms. So those are extremely crucial to me. So I take off the fan leaves. I let everything dry for seven days, 10 days, and then final process all my uh, sugar leaves off and all the tight processing to make, you know, the presentable medicine in the end. Um, yeah, I mean, I dry and cure. I dry actually with a lot of airflow, but really cold temperatures. I dry and I try to get average of 55 to 60 degrees uh, Fahrenheit and I try to have no more than 50% relative humidity. I try to keep it roughly between 43 and 47%. The reason being is because if you're, we're, we're in Seattle, so you guys of all people should know, when it's cold, you guys wrap up, you guys do this. It's the same thing the bud does. When it's hot, you expand. It's the exact same thing that your medicine will do. So when you're hot out, if it's hot in your grow room or your drying room, you're going to have fluffy, expanded, spread out buds. Even if it was dense to begin with, it's still going to have this weird, fluffy, extra space in it because it was hot. So I prefer colder drying with, with almost, like I said, relative humidity of maybe 43 to 47%, no higher than 50% because then you can run into the mold category of things because you're so low in temperature. Um, that's probably, I, that's the way that I prefer to dry all of everything. There's nothing else, there's nothing that I won't dry like that. DJ Short? Sure. Um, uh, three days of dark before you cut the plant. Um, again, I'm in soil. My water um, cycle is usually about every four days or so. And you know that when the plant starts getting thirsty, the leaves start drooping, going down. And I'll give it its last watering, and those leaves come right back up like so. And then right when it starts to droop again, that's the day I cut the lights. Now, if you're running a sea of green or something, you, and you have you know five or six going in and out a week, um, you want to use, like say, a separate closet. Just pull the plants out, keep them attached, and let them have three days' worth of darkness. And the reason being is that uh, cannabinoids break down in the light. We found that um, THC levels are highest before the lights go on and lowest right before the lights go off. 
So the uh, three days of darkness kind of starts breaking down that chlorophyll as well. So after that three days in the dark, they're wilted. They're, they're down. They're already starting to cure on the vine. Then I'll just cut them, hang them upside down, and kind of the traditional process from there. Um, <clears throat> debating on when they go into the jar, and, of course, the um, stem crack when you bend the, the bud is the indicator that you're, you're there. So there's two distinct stages, drying and then curing. And the drying stage is getting a good majority of the water out. But what happens with curing is you're getting the last little bit out from the center of the bud outwardly through the outside of it. So like he said, when you put it in the jar, you think it's dry at that point because it's dry on the outside and the stem snaps. When you go back and open that jar in a couple hours and it's moist again, that's that moisture sweating its way out of the center of the bud. It's very important for, to, to do this, and a lot of the commercial growers don't obviously do it. So that's why you end up with a bud that doesn't burn properly um, to like a nice, clean, white ash. Um, let's see. Uh, I got a question for each, each of you guys individually. Uh, what do you think are the biggest mistakes that people make uh, when growing and... What can they do, I guess, to, to fix those problems? Uh, I have the biggest problem with patience. And I'm sure 95 to 98, maybe 99, maybe even 100% of most other people that grow have the exact same issue. Patience is the biggest thing. Patience. You understand it when you sit there and you're watching it grow and you're like, why doesn't it grow faster? But it's not going to grow faster. So you just have to be patient. That's the best advice that I could honestly offer any new grower, and that's the most common mistake that I personally see and that I personally notice that I do too. It's just patience. You get to got to go, got to rush, got to rush, got to go. Slow down. Take a step back. Be patient. All right, uh, DJ Short. Sure, the best things are worth waiting for. That's, that's definitely true. Uh, um, the big problem I see is overfeeding um, and just don't feed so much. Um, my, my strains in particular have been bred using very little uh, nutrients, so they're newt-sensitive initially. It's mainly in the sprout and seedling stage. And newt lock is a god-awful ugly thing that can stick with the plant all the way through it. I, I've had to scrap whole R&D projects due to newt lock. Um, they sometimes just don't come out of it. So again, less is more. Keep it simple. It, it, it's a plant. It's a weed. <laughs> All right, Drew. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely keep it simple. You know, there's a lot of good products out there on the market. There's a lot of you know, there's for every good one, there's probably some shady one. Don't get caught up in any type of hype. Don't like see something wrong with your plant and think there's something you can run down to the grocery store and buy that you're going to pour on it and it's going to react like instantly and do it and then, you know, integrate all these other foreign things into your feeding regimen over time, you know, but just, you know, by doing that. So just keep it simple. Like they said, it's a weed, you know, be very conscious of the life that's going on in the soil and definitely keep, that's why, you know, he said he doesn't feed them anything. They still grow, you know, is because all it really needs is what's going on in the soil, the organics, you know, the microbiology, the soil food web, if you will, you know, be mindful of that and respectful of that, and you'll always, you'll always read better buds that way, you know. 
Hey everybody, this is uh, Mike and Dan back in the studio. We, we hope you're enjoying this live recording of Free Weed. Uh, we don't mean to interrupt, but... but uh, We're going to get right back to the show, but I just wanted to mention, you can check us out on Stitcher.com. If you go to Stitcher.com slash High Times, it's a great site, a great way to listen to all your podcasts, not just Free Weed. But if you do download Stitcher from the App Store, um, which is free and easy, during your registration Hit the promo code box uh, and enter high times for a chance to win a hundred dollar cash card, and that would be awesome. That would support it. Would be that'd yeah. be great. Yeah, and we also have, as usual, BC Northern Lights, the great grow boxes from Canada, um, with us from the beginning. BC Northern Lights supporting yeah. free weed. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no better way to get free weed than to get one of these grow boxes and just start growing it yourself. So they're giving a special deal if you mention the show. You get $100 shipping, and you get six months of free nutrients. So uh, mention the show when you give them a call at 888-236-1266, and check them out at bcnordenlights.com. Great and grow boxes. That, that free shipping really is a great deal. That, that saves you a lot of cash. Yeah, yeah, because these are pretty, pretty big machines, so they, they cost a lot to ship them, but they have that special deal, so be sure to mention free weed. Uh, another sponsor, Stealth Grow, which uh, recently came aboard, have a great product it's a green night light it's a uh, five watt led light with that's all green lights you can work in your grow room at night and actually see without uh without freaking out your plants and yeah, you won't disrupt the uh, the light cycle right absolutely and they have a special deal as well uh you enter the promo code danko d-a-n-k-o and they'll give you 15 percent off on these lights um which normally retail i think for 34.99 so you're getting them for uh, a, li- a little more than five bucks off, uh, around twenty nine bucks plus shipping. So, a uh, very essential product for the grow room if you want to get in there and simulate uh, nighttime rains with a foliar feed or any kind of uh, checking for bugs or just want to know what the temperature is at night in your room. Uh, get that Stealth Grow Green Night Light LED. Uh, screws into a regular incandescent, and you get fifteen percent off if you enter Denko as the code. Yeah, and we'll have more information on the Free Weed Facebook page about that. But please do check out those sponsors. And uh, now, yeah. what do you say? Should we go back to the... Yeah, without any further ado, let's get back to the panel. All right, great. Well, um, I don't know how many people in the audience here are Free Weed listeners. Hopefully, uh, you will be. I know Jesse and James are. Um, but uh, one of the segments we like to do on the show is uh, get questions from our listeners and then have them answered by Danko. And today, uh, since we have this panel here, we thought we'd get some of your questions. If you have anything you'd like to ask these cultivation experts or Dan, uh, please do. So think about that. I'm going to get them started with uh, something that was written in, freeweed at hightimes.com. This was emailed to us from Jordan. Uh, my question is about neem oil. I'm confused on when it's appropriate to use. I've heard you uh, recommend it to kill pests, but I've heard other people say it's only good as a preventative measure. Uh, should it be applied periodically throughout the growth of the plant? Um, yeah, I mean, I think most people use neem oil to combat mites, you know, and it's spider mites, and it's definitely effective. It's in the majority of all the products that you'll buy to spray for mites and for aphids and things like that. Um, I try it. It has a very distinctive smell. It's got an odor that's not it's not pleasant, you know. So I don't like to spray it on well-formed buds. I'd say, like, maybe four weeks would be the absolute, like, cutoff, you know. 
pushing it, right? Yeah, I mean, but if you got a real bad case of mites or something, it's, you know, you got to figure that out. But, but yeah, that neem oil, it, it does well, but it does stink. It's going to make, if you grow in your house, it'll make your house stink. Um, you know, and mites and these bugs have a funny way of becoming immune to these things. You know, and neem's been out on the market for so long, been used for so long, that it's almost to the point where we've got these, like, hybrid mites now that don't even, doesn't even phase them, you know, so... But it is in a lot of the products that do work well when they mix it in conjunction with some other things, too, you know. So, I mean, neem is definitely, a, you know, it's a staple in the grow room. But, yeah, don't, like, you know, don't spray it on well-formed buds, I'd say. Does that pretty much clear it up, or do you have anything to add to that? No. All right. Does anyone out in the audience have a question? All right. Hold on one sec. All right. What do you got? Uh, I was wondering if you had a general recommendation for uh, how long to veg the plants, you know, like two months or a certain height. I'm using like a two-gallon pot. I'm going to ask probably the first question that's on everybody's mind. How big is your area? That's probably the most important is height. I've got a, a, a DR120 darkroom. It's, okay, you know, yeah. uh, so you five got, foot by yeah. four foot by three foot yeah, at so 400 watts on agro. Something like that, I would say you're going to want to probably veg for, you wouldn't have to veg for too long of a period of time before you fill out the actual dark room, you know, itself, right? Yeah, I, I did the math on this ages ago, and it ends up being one extreme or the other. I either, well, doing R&D work and trying to fit as many crops in a year, it's as soon as that clone is rooted and puts out like an inch of growth, boom, it goes into bud. Um, either that or grow it as big as you can. And when you sit there with a calculator at the end of the year, they, they both kind of come out the same. And it's that one in the middle that you end up with lower, lower yield. So it's either take it really big or really shoot them through <coughs> real fast, if that helps. Yeah, that will, okay, so a lot of that's going to be dependent on your strain. You know, your indica, your real heavy indica strains aren't going to grow as stretchy, you know, and I, as quickly as some of your more sativa-dominant strains. I like to use a hybrid of about like a 60-40 sativa-dominant hybrid, you know. That gives me a good structure, a, a faster finishing time, and a much quicker vegging time. With our technique that we use, um, like it's a predetermined, you know, you're trying to shape every plant identical, uh, it's six weeks, give or take, from the time you take the clone to the point where you can throw it into bud. And that's that. If you're going to grow numerous just straight cola plants, you know, you can throw them in almost immediately because they're going to still triple in size going straight up. If you're going to grow outwards, sounds like you have a five-foot ceiling, you need to grow outward more than you need to grow upward. You could potentially veg your plants for two months or three months even and do it. But then the only thing to do, the longer you veg your plant, the more root forms in the pot, the more susceptible they are to the ultimate, like, you know, root rot or becoming root bound in the pot. So, I mean, it, keep that in mind. If you plant, the longer you veg, the more transplants maybe you should make, you know, or plan that out. Know what your ultimate size pot you want to finish in, and, you know, and then you know, it worked out. But, yeah, about six weeks to do what we're doing, you know, and to get it like that, um, sometimes less. You know, like a, a good jack or something will do it in four weeks. Yeah, I usually tell people as a decent rule of thumb, uh, about a week per gallon of the container. So if it's a two-gallon container, a couple of weeks. If it's a five-gallon container, a little over a month. But the bigger the container, the bigger the root system, and the bigger the plant, 
and then you can do the training techniques to get uh, more tops if you have that bigger root system. So I definitely, I think uh, five-gallon buckets minimum. So you'd want a bigger container if you were going to go longer than the two weeks or three weeks or so of vegging. Because the plant will eventually get root-bound, and it, it just won't reach its potential. All right. I uh, hope that helps. And uh, we have a question here specifically for Swerve. Sorry about that. Um, the gentleman to your left, when they were talking about the triclones, he was saying that he waits until they're about amber, and you had a look on your face like that wasn't what you go with. What do you go with hydroponics? I know you guys work on different systems, so I was trying to see what um, you thought was correct. I actually do kind of go on the longer side of things because I actually prefer a more indica hit. Uh, so I do like the darker trichrome, but... Um, I've been finding out lately that more and more I've more enjoyed a more even balance between a cloudy trichrome and a, uh, an amber trichrome because of certain symptoms that I end up with, like tremors and just tingling in my legs. So I've noticed that having too heavy of an indica really doesn't seem to do as much as more of an of a intermediate between the two. So, I yeah, I've been noticing lately that I've kind of been picking... Roughly about 65 days, 60 to 65 days on, on most of my stuff. Maybe even a little earlier, 58, or uh, yeah, 58 to 65. And uh, you're also talking about the majority of the trichomes. They're gonna, some are, some are going to still be clear and some are going to be amber and some will be cloudy. But um, typically people say when the majority of them are, are, have gone to cloudy but not yet the majority have gone amber because they're, they're still going to kind of get redder during the, the drying and curing process. That's a really good point. Don't wait for every single one of them to be like that. You'll be in big trouble. Again. Yeah, that's About like, that's you've gone too far. You know, yeah. Yeah. All right, great. Um, I have a question for uh, DJ Short, actually. I wanted, I know people, a lot of people know about the blueberry, but maybe not so much about the breeding process that you went through to create it. So I was wondering if maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, oh, God. The short story, um, people ask me, how, how did I develop the blueberry? And in my book, I say, to satisfy my own head, I was trying to replicate the uh, great effects of, like, the Highland Oaxacan, the Highland Thai, the Colombian Gold, which we're not going to be able to do indoors. Um, we, we can't emulate the uh, tropical environment. Um, but... The other side of that, it's for my head. In my lecture, I talk about this, and it boils down to healing. It's the one that healed me. You know, um, uh, there's a number of aspects that you can uh, gauge uh, judging cannabis, onset, duration, tolerance threshold, uh, shelf life, things like that. very important one to me is tolerance threshold. And Blueberry passed that test, and it took a long time. I mean, it takes six months minimum to really judge a strain, in my opinion. Uh, but I'll say this. I've been smoking the Blueberry now for over 30 years, and it takes about half as much for me to get the same effect from it now um, as, in, as in the past. So there's definitely no tolerance buildup. And it's one of the problems I have with a lot of the heavy-hitting Indicas. Um, you know, they're novel at first, but they get very boring. I call it bland potency. Um, other things I breed away from are like stupefaction. I like clear-headedness, and and blueberry uh, did, did did that as well. Um, as you know, the starting 
material was the Highland tie, uh, chocolate tie, uh, Highland Oaxacan, and a, a pure Afghan. And it was bringing that Afghan to the um, sativa that created the F1s, which were all uniform across the F1s, and it's in there that you see all this great diversity. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I mean, I could prattle on for hours about that, but I'll spare you. Cool. Uh, All right, well, we have have some more questions from the audience. Uh, This is from Jason. Um, I was was curious if any of you guys have used um, sound, sound waves or sound machines, um, specifically BioWave. I've had really interesting luck with it. I've seen that outdoors in NorCal where people have those uh, machines that make the sound, and this is the spinning, the spinning machine. Yeah, yeah. Um, if very interesting results. I mean, the the I don't know all the science on that, but um, look into uh, vibrational medicine, and it, it, it's it's has to do with everything in nature has a vibration. It's when those vibrations become disharmonious that we have disease and problems. And I think that's what that biowave is, is based on. Uh, it's, it's simple like playing music for the plants. You know, I do that all the time. Um, I think that, that when a leaf is, tr- is moving, it's, it's, more, it's living better because it's, it's not stagnant in the air that's around it. It's actually... Sure, but just uh, do a search on vibrational medicine. There's lots of information out there. It's ancient. It's Ayurvedic, and uh, it's also modern as well. So there's a lot of interesting things going on there, and I think there's, there's something of interest for sure. And there's also something about this, the, the stomata of the leaves opening. I've heard that um, it's to almost replicate the frequencies sent out by the birds and the wildlife that wake up in the morning. You know, that, that somehow trigger the plants around them to, to do their thing. You know, they're sensitive to light, vibration. You know, why not sound, vibration? Right. Well, plants are constantly sending messages back and forth from the roots to the leaves. And, uh, you know, the, those things like auxins that travel within the plant. And so it's very likely that sound vibration is helpful. I love to play good, like, reggae music for my plants and stuff. Just good vibes. You know, just, it certainly can't hurt anything. Looks like the other panelists agree with that. Is that true? Yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. It's funner to work in a grow room environment yeah, no, with music helps. anyway. I mean, you know, a little Bob Marley. Can't beat that. Can't you be know. bad. All right. Um, Omar here, uh, he needed a little clarification about the flushing process. Yeah, I was curious to know because we always hear you're supposed to flush the last two weeks, but as consumers, when we buy products, they give us eight-week cycles. And for somebody like me, I'll use Canna. The PK goes in a certain week, and then you use the boost towards the end. But if do you guys just stop at six weeks and stop using the nutrients then, or do you go through the full feed chart and then after the eight weeks is done, do the two-week flush. Are you soil, hydro? Uh, I'm soil. I use the can of bio and stuff. So, I mean, but I mean, just as a general thing, because any feed chart that you buy or, you know, products that you have, they always give you the full eight weeks of thing. And then, uh, but we always hear it's supposed to flush the last two weeks. So do you let an eight-week strain go for ten weeks while you're flushing the last two? Or do you still... Just stop using the products at six weeks and flush the last two. Yeah, I mean, one one thing I'll say about nutrient companies, <laughs> we're like bagging on them, but uh, they're trying to sell you more nutrients. So they're gonna they're gonna recommend that you use the 
highest dosage, and they're not going to recommend that you stop using it for those last two weeks. Um, that's something that we do as growers, and we make that choice to, to stop using them. But it's at the six-week point where you would do that. You wouldn't let them go an extra two weeks and flush. Um, you would do it two weeks before you plan to harvest. Yeah, and of course, they don't know what strain you're growing. You know, they don't. It's, they have to make this like broad generalization of okay, everybody's plants finish, and, and you know they're not weed growers. You know, some of them are, but I mean, but it's just so they're trying to say, you know, okay, here on average, this is a standard, and you can just kind of build from that. You know, like anytime I've tried to follow a feeding schedule like that, yeah, you've run into the same problem. You know, you're just gonna have to kind of tweak it to get all that stuff in within those those weeks and then still flush if you're in hydro like like swerve is you don't need all that time so like canna anytime i've ever used that it was in hydro and we'd follow close to that schedule but still kill out the last week and just give it straight water for the last week because you don't have to you know flush the soil and all that kind of stuff that goes along with it but in soil um yeah you, you really as a rule of thumb you know you need to give yourself at least 10 days for a full flush you know so in your six week you know use the boost just for a week. And that's the other thing, too, like I was saying earlier. I mean, all this stuff has to break down in the soil and become available to the plant in a different form. There's nothing you're going to pour on your soil at 6 o'clock that's going to do anything at 8 o'clock. You know what I mean? It's going to take days, you know. So it's like you follow these feeding schedule regimens, and they're really just, you know, they're kind of superfluous, man. I mean, it's you got to find what's good for your strain and what in the time that it's required to finish, you know what I yeah. mean? And they're going to always recommend you use more than you actually need. With almost any nutrient program, I would say start off using half of what they recommend and work your way up rather than going with what they say right off the bat because um, your plants will, be, will still grow, but you'll have those burnt tips and you'll just be, you'll be erring on the side of not caution but overfeeding. And it's always easier to add food or water than it is to take away food or, and water. You know. 100%. So overfeeding and overwatering are, are, are much bigger issues than underfeeding or underwatering. You'd rather be under than over because under you can at least build to. Over, you got to subtract. Right. If you see burnt tips on the, t you know, the tips of your leaves, that's almost always a sign of fertilizer burn. And at that point, you want to flush no matter what stage of growth you're in just to get all that excess nutrient out of your medium and start fresh with the fresh uh, watered, watered medium. All right. I uh, hope that helps. Uh, Omar, we're about an hour in, uh, but I see a lot of people out here who still want to ask questions. So let's do the lightning round and try and get as many as possible. Daryl has a question about temperature and uh, growth cycle. Uh, mine was still on the growth cycle, but the temperature dropped really fast. I'm on the other side of the mountains overnight, and everything turned into mother mode basically overnight. So I'm just wondering if you had any anything to say about that, about changing your temperature during your going from growth to mother cycle. Or to flowering, I mean, I think. To flowering, yeah. yeah. Sorry. To flowering. Um, you know, pot size, if you have all these crazy temperature fluctuations and stuff, you know, the pot size matters a lot there, too. Um, and it can matter in two opposite reasons, really. Like, if it's getting super cold and you have a real big pot, um, you could potentially get some root rot within if it's going to be real cold in your room and the plants aren't transpiring and drinking the water as quick as they would if they were in a warmer situation. You know, so 
And, uh, you know, so also on the flip side, if it's super hot in there and you have it in a bigger pot, it can actually ventilate itself and cool itself through its root system by pulling in the, the waters and all that. But as far as, like, a temperature you want to shoot for, like, in transition into the bud, I'd say, you know, 70 to 75 is probably ideal, you know, and that's within the first couple of weeks. It can get a little hotter towards the end of the bud cycle, just like it does outside in the summertime, you know, and it's just... I think that you don't ever want to let it go over much, much over about 80 degrees. That's when a lot of your mites will show up and a lot of your bugs and things will start to stress the plant out a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, it, you know, for just a, what to shoot for, I think, you know, 75 degrees is probably like a max that you want in flipping those in to the uh, bud stage. Sorry? That answered your question. I don't know. He's on an indoor hydro system. Well, with hydroponics, it's, it is very important, the temperature of the water in the reservoir. If it's too cold or too hot, you're going to have serious, serious issues. So, and, and simple ways to fix that are an aquarium heater that you can have in there if it's too cold. Uh, if it's too hot, which is typically more likely, uh, a chiller. Yeah. You know. Well, you said you're in a hydroponic system, you said? Yes. Um, it just all... I wasn't expecting it to go from 100 degrees down to, you know, 35 yeah. overnight. Um, and so I had windows open all over the building, and well, the, so the everything part, went to flower. Pardon the me? good part about that, is, well, not the good part, but, like, uh, the thing that you should medium out is your water temperature, like he was saying. 68, or uh, was it 68 to 72 is optimal nutrient uptake, for, I believe. It's maybe one or two degrees off. I think it's maybe... 60, uh, 72, like 68 to 72 range, somewhere around there, 69, 72 is optimal nutrient uptake for the plant. So, yeah, 38 is going to definitely shock it, and I'm surprised that it went back to veg, though. Well, there were, so that really... He said they went to f- into flowers. It was in 255-gallon drums, so I didn't think it would change that fast in the building. So I don't, wow. it was mainly the out... I, I think it's mainly from the plants getting cold is what I was thinking. Yeah, I don't think that water is going to change that fast. Yeah, no, your, your plants are getting cold, so they're getting shocked, and there's natural reaction when it stresses out is to go into finish-off mode. All That's right. That's the plant's let's natural tr- reaction. Let's try and get a couple more in here. Uh, Ted has a question that we get a lot on the show here. Powdery mildew, what do you use to kill this stuff? I got a perpetual going, so it's, you know, shutting down and, and starting all over again is not really an option. So do you like chemicals or no? Well, if sure, I'll use chemicals as long as it works. There's plenty Eagle of 20. stuff you, you know. Contr- what is it? Eagle 20. Eagle 20? Don't know. Okay. Don't, if you're okay with chemicals, Eagle 20 is the end-all be-all for powdery mildew. It's actually systemic, so it actually goes into the plant to help kill the spore. The other thing about it is it's actually, what most people don't know, is it's ornamental grass is what it's used for, i.e. golf courses, expensive, nice country club golf courses, stuff that you see on TV type of golf courses. They use that by the 55-gallon drum of it. The other thing is, though, is it's hard to get because it's agricultural only. But Eagle 20 will solve all of your PM issues. If you can't get your heads on that, I know they make these uh, sulfur vaporizers. Sulfur is supposed to kill the powdery mildew. Um, but the thing about powdery mildew is not just on your plants. 
It's in your ventilation. It's in your lights. It's in your fans. It's in your pots. It's in your it's in your wallpaper. You know, it's it's everywhere. So you really, if you want to completely eradicate it, you really don't have a choice but to kind of pull everything out and pressure spray your room with some bleach water or something. You know, and burn some sulfur in there. And but it's yeah, it, it's a gnarly thing. And just by all means, don't ever smoke weed that has powdery mildew on it. Um, it's it's extremely bad for you. I mean, it, you'll cause serious respiratory problems that could even be fatal sometimes. So it's something to definitely take care of. It, it, it sucks. It, it's, you know, one of the worst things you can get. But I would start working on getting rid of it for sure. Important safety tip there. All right. Um, Jeff here has a question about the dreaded spider mites. Okay, my question is uh, Mighty Wash, have you guys ever used it? And number two is cedar oil, spraying it in the room so it's not on your plants, but for the scent to keep the spider mites at bay. Anything? Neither of those will work. <laughs> so, what would you recommend? Luck? <laughs> no, uh, to be honest, um, I prefer two different methods. If I have to go the chemical route, I will use a triple threat, which is pyrethin. Avid Fluoramite. And aside from all those, if you can, I highly suggest going the organic route, which is nice. It's called cilantro. If you grow coriander with your plants, I know it sounds weird, but it's true. Mites cannot stand coriander at all. Yeah, it's a natural thing. If you actually look up the, the certain insects and plants that don't agree with them, cilantro and mites do not get along. And you can make salsa afterwards, too. There you go. Uh, <laughs> you had to step on your toes. Drew, you want to comment on that? Yeah, just real quick. Another thing is just there's a lot of prevention you can do to prevent the mites in the first place. You know, it's keeping your atmosphere proper, and it's keeping your plants properly trimmed. Any time you have these, you know, all these undergrowth of leaves and stuff under your branches, those are havens for mites. You want to keep everything to where you can see through your plant and air can flow through your plant. And... Just keep all that stuff that doesn't need to be there out of there. Keep your room clean and just, you know, cleanliness will help. Just you never get mites in the first place. Yeah, and always check the underside of the leaves. You guys would be amazed how many uh, grow rooms I've visited that have dead leaves on the floor and stuff like that. That's just a breeding ground, like he said, for mites. So uh, keep it clean and do preventative things. Temperature, temperature. They love heat, right? Um, We actually looked this up. Um, a crazy, uh, my programmer actually, I believe it's over 86 degrees or somewhere around 85, 83. It, their life cycle literally goes from hour, like from days to hours. If it's above 86 to like 90, 93 degrees, the, the actual bug can lay an egg within hours that lay, that egg actually hatches and within the, I think like a couple hours after that, that actual egg that just hatched can lay another egg. They're born pregnant. They're, no, they, they, they grow that they, fast they because of the heat. They grow that fast because of the heat. The mite, the spider mite, it's, the other thing that people don't realize is, is they become immune to stuff because of the amount of money that the actual agriculture industry throws at them because of that. The strawberry mite gets millions of dollars every year from the strawberry farmers to have another... Uh, chemical developed to kill the mite that became resistant to that chemical that they developed the year before. So temperature is crucial. If you have mites, slow them down. Cold. It's the best way you're going to get rid of them, aside from what he was saying is prevention. Yeah, 
Again, I know when you get mites, the last thing you want to hear about is prevention. Back in the day, we used to joke, people say, I got mites, and we'd say, is your fire insurance paid up? Um, but in terms of prevention, a, a couple of cleanliness is very important. Uh, Home Depot, you can get these sticky mats that they use for contractors. There's like 50 sheets of them. You peel off, you step on those. Taking your shoes off, they travel on shoes a lot. Uh, positive air pressure in the room, so there's always air going out of the room. They can't fight that. That it's like a hurricane to them. Um, other than that, uh, terrible chemicals uh, like right now, um, no pest strips, dichlorvos, but it's terribly uh, carcinogenic. It says right on the package, don't be in the room with this thing. Um, but they work. Back in the day, there was something called um, di- uh, oh no, what was it? Dicofil, but they banned that. <laughs> so if you do get the Borg, good luck. And take off yellow leaves. They're attracted to the color yellow. This is because it's the color of uh, a plant that's starting to go bad. And that's a great place for them to set up shops. So, and that's why sticky traps, you know, that's why they're yellow. is because the, the bug is just attracted to that color. So if you have the yellow leaves, they're going to be attracted to, it, to that in particular. Um, because it's, that, it's the color of, of death as far as they're concerned, which is a a great home for them. They don't love perfectly healthy, green, lush plants. They want to hit the plants where they're already somewhat damaged. All right. I think we found something the entire uh, panel can agree on. Fuck spider mites. <laughs> yeah. Mites um, suck. Unfortunately, we only have time for a couple more questions. Uh, Sean had one about uh, topping her plants and when to do so. Yeah, Drew had mentioned a 64 bud top. That sounds pretty good to me. So, like, how, assuming a hybrid plant, how tall before you start topping it, how old in veg growth before you start topping it, and do the rest of you top your plants? I start, I top right after the sixth node on my clone. And I mentioned earlier when I'm taking my clones, I'm looking for a specific um, structure on them. I'm looking for something that has perpendicularly opposed nodes, basically. I'll let six nodes appear on the plant before I top it right off the top. And then I'll take the bottom two branches, the bottom two nodes, completely off, leaving myself with four north, south, east, west facing branches. All right? Those grow out horizontally, and I keep them completely symmetrical to each other. Each one of those branches has allowed six to grow off of it. And each of those six are allowed either two or three, depending on, the, on where they are, to grow off of them. You ultimately end up with 64 tops if you start from this method, just follow the simple mathematics of it. Um, you, yeah, so top right away, you know, and that's the only time. Uh, there's just one top to get the 64. The rest is just bending the top over. If the, the top of the tip of the branch is bent over and it's lower than the node directly below it, the node below it will take over as the dominant part. So what we're trying to do is just create kind of like a candelabra-looking plant that has these, that everybody's at the same level. Nobody, nobody rises up over anybody else. So, yeah, to just for your specifically, yeah, top it one time after the sixth node and then let it go from there. Everything else from that is bending using, like, an electrical ground wire. I like to use a little 10-gauge wire to bend those branches down to hold them into place, either fasten it to the rim of the pot <coughs> or build a little square structure around it, which you can pull each of your 
uh, branches into their own little designated directions, you know. And, um, yeah, so just for me, one top. The rest is just low-stress training, bending and tying and things like that. Um, and that's all detailed in your book, Grow Secrets of the West Coast Masters. Yeah, right? Secrets of the West Coast Masters. You can get it on westcoastmasters.com. It's available right now. <laughs> nice plug segue. <laughs> That's a great plug. I suggest everyone go and check that out. All right. Two more questions, and then we're done. Uh, Jason wanted to know. Um, I wanted to know, uh, I'm about halfway through my flower cycle, and I get these big um, flower, or fan leaves, and I wanted to know if you trim those off and let the littler fan leaves just grow, or if you just let them get really big during flower. Selective pruning is always recommended. Meaning... Meaning, if they're blocking bud sites, then they don't need to be there. <laughs> but if they're at the top of the plant, though, then you've got to kind of leave them there. But if you get a little bit more into the middle range of the plant and they're blocking, you know, you've got a massive fan leaf and it's blocking a whole bunch of different stuff, off with its head, as I say. <laughs> so be selective, though. That doesn't mean just cutting off all the fan leaves. They are the factory is the energy where the light is taken in and produces the flowers so you can't just take all the fan leaves off you got to be very selective and yeah, yeah juice the fan leaves oh yeah you can juice them and yep, mix yep, yep. that you know that's very healthy you get a lot of uh, like wheatgrass yeah it's like wheatgrass <laughs> a good uh, juicing article on uh, on hightimes.com from yep. medical marijuana so check that out uh, final question you can also sometimes you can tuck them without having to kill them, you can kind of tuck them under. So they're still there. They might not be blocking the bud site, but they're still doing the work for you. Dan likes to tuck. <laughs> anyway. Tuck uh, last question. This one's specifically for DJ Short. Michael wants to know. Well, uh, it sounds like DJ has done most of the research and was saying that light is their biggest food. So I was wondering if you could talk about the par value of light and maybe if any of you guys have had any experience with induction lighting. No, uh, define induction lighting. <clears throat> Something called Indigro out there. It's, I guess, Tesla technology, 100 years old, but it hits all par values of light, so you don't have to, like, switch out your room from the uh, high-pressure sodium to the halide. It, it hits all the spectrums. Okay, full spectrum. Yeah, interesting. Um, yes, along with light timing, the main factor that we can manipulate in the indoor environment would be that temperature of the light. Um, uh, Kelvin and, and getting as, as full of a, a range as possible. The best systems I've known of up to now, I'll have to look up uh, what your in, induction lighting, did you say? Okay. Uh, the spinner systems are the helicopter lights. Um, six arms, about six feet across, or three arms rather, with six ends. Um, every Kelvin from 2,000 to 10,000, uh, each bulb is 150 watts. They're highlights. It spins once a second and goes around, um, getting very deep penetration and very full spectrum. Um, it's the most like outdoors I've ever seen. You're getting uh, uh, light penetration and very uh, tight buds uh, deep within the canopy. Uh, another interesting factor with these is that, as we all know, the plants will grow into a bulb. There's nothing that stops it, and it will burn itself, but a plant will not grow into a moving object. So they grow up, sense this, it's, it's like a, a ceiling fan, basically, with lights on the end of it, the spinners. Uh, but then there's something else called spinners, so, and pe so people are calling them helicopter lights. Um, 
but they grow up to it and then out. They, 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 the canopy actually um, stretches or presents itself in a way that's the most efficient. Um, I, I haven't had first-hand experience with them, but I've seen a number of grow rooms with them. They're a little nerve-wracking to see the lights spinning around, and you kind of got to duck and things. But, yeah, um, frequency of light is very important. Uh, my advice to people always is, you know, if you can, grow outdoors, please. Um, it, it's the great highlight in the sky, you know, is the best way to go. Um, there was also the plasma lighting. Is, it, is the induction related to the plasma lighting? Okay. Okay. Cool. So is, is it relatively new? Okay. So no, it's not new. It's been around for a while. Interesting. Hmm? Okay. Right. Got it. Well, let's uh, unpress it. <laughs> you know, the time is now. But yeah, light frequency is very important. Very important for bringing out phenotypic uh, characteristics, I think. All right. Well, Danko's having such a good time here, our very first uh, live free week. We're going to do one more question. So who wants to be it? Who's got one more question for us? All right. Here we go. I want to know which is the perfect temperature for the water in the cloning machines. The temperature for the water in a cloning machine? it seems like in the, where, where people put the clones in soil, they want warmness, but they want, when the water gets hot, you can actually steam the, 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 the so. Yeah, in the clone machines, and, you know, really it's 68 is probably optimal, but what happens in the clone machines is the motor that's in the pump. The, the pump is actually heating up the water, you know, and that's what causes it to literally steam. Um, there are tons of different clone machines. Uh, there's ones that, ways you can make them yourself to kind of get rid of that problem. Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely what's up with the you know 68 degrees optimal if you can. And sometimes you know if you monitor it, some clone machines will have a little temperature strip on them that tells you what they are. You know if you just pour some cold water and uh, really, I mean, you can freeze a bottle of water too and just put it in there to drop temperatures temporarily. Um, especially because you're cloning. You wouldn't want to do that through a whole hydro cycle, but just for the week or so, week and a half, two-week process of cloning, um, you can do that as well to keep the temperature down. But if it gets too warm, you get root rot um, because the yeah, definitely smaller a small, pump. Sometimes they unit. have the pump outside the unit even, some of, the, some of them. That, yeah, that'd be ideal. But, yeah, the smaller the unit is, it's probably going to be the smaller the pump that's running it. I think I use like a... A 296 when I make them myself, gallon per hour, and uh, I never have any problem with heat with that specific one. But then I, that builds me a clone machine that'll do about a dozen clones at a time, you know. All right, well, I hope that helps out. And thank you guys so much for being a part of our yeah. very first live free weed. Please give it up I'm for gonna, this uh, panel. Yeah. DJ Short. Swerve, Drew West, thank you. Yes, and I'm going to be over at the High Times booth. We're going to uh, going to be signing some posters and books and whatnot. So Go check them out over there. Come on over there. Oh, we got some. Uh, going to give away some, some stuff. Cali Connection stuff to give away here. <laughs> what else is new? Swerve is giving stuff away. Yeah. Give it away. Yeah. Thanks to DJ Jacques and Winstrong for the song too. We got our own theme song. Episode 29. 
Hey, all right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the first live episode of Free Weed from Danny Danko. Yeah, that, that was a lot of fun to do, and I'm really looking forward to doing it again in Amsterdam. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, that's going to be fun. So hopefully some of, you, some of you guys will be over there with us, and uh, we can do that show live over there as well. We've got episode 30 coming up, too. That's right. Nice yeah. milestone for us. That is. Uh, yeah. And lots of great guests are coming our way. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Just thank you so much for supporting the show. Yeah. You guys are awesome. Uh, I love hearing from the fans. I love it when you guys come up and uh, say hello and talk about the show. It's really great. And I actually got recognized in <laughs> Seattle, which is the strangest, most mind blowing thing. This really nice you young fans, woman. I, well, fan, but still, <laughs> this very nice young woman came up to me after we did the live recording and said that she really enjoyed the show and she loved listening to us. So, yeah, it, you know, it's, uh, that's very gratifying for both Dan and I. Absolutely. We, we like that. So. We're going places and we're taking, <laughs> we're taking you guys with us. We're taking uh, BC Northern Lights with us. Mm. Uh, or they're Stealth taking Bro, us with them. Or they're taking us yeah and uh yeah we just want to thank all the listeners and all our sponsors bcnorthernlights.com stealthgrow.com uh be sure to check out the special deals they have for freeweed listeners um and stitcher.com is a great app to listen to all your favorite podcasts so check that out as well yeah more information on all of our sponsors on hightimes.com and of course the freeweed facebook page absolutely like us on facebook and uh yeah, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. That's the big... Uh, Whatever the, big the hell that is. Yeah. Uh, just a little bit of housekeeping. Of course, uh, we will return to our normal format for episode 30. Uh, so please do send your questions for Dan to answer on air. Uh, you could get us uh, by Twitter, at Danny Danko, hashtag freeweed, at Mike Hughes underscore, if you're desperate. And of course, uh, by email, it is freeweed at hightimes.com. All right. So, yeah, uh, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, that was a blast. We hope you enjoyed it, and uh, I guess we'll see you next week. Yeah, give us your feedback. Like us on SoundCloud. Favorite us. <laughs> <laughs> Make comments. Tell your friends. Oh, right. Maybe we should also mention, <laughs> perhaps belatedly, um, this is the Raw Papers wrap-up. Oh, yeah. yeah we don't miss Wrapping a it up single... with Raw. That's right. We, we always wrap it up with Raw at the end of the show. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I like the brown ones, the, uh, not the organic ones. I like the regular brown ones. Yeah, those are good. That's what I wrap it up with. Right. Well, there you go. I like the, the cones that you could stuff. You know, it's like a, I'm not a great joint roller. So for me, you know, it's an impressive-looking joint. It's a big, fat one. You could pass it around. It's a, yeah, that's what I like. You guys should buy those yourself if you're interested. Raw. All right. <laughs> We're going to stop dragging this out. Thank you so much for checking out episode 29, and uh, we will see you soon. Yes. Thank you. <laughs>